screw it, let's do it lessons in life Richard Branson. Learn the secrets of a global icon. Throughout my life I have always strived for success, as a businessman, in my adventures, as an author and a proud father and husband. I want to share the many truths I've learned along the road to success which have helped me to be the best I can. They include. Have faith in yourself. Believe that anything can be done. Live life to the full. Never give up. Learn these and other simple truths, and I hope you will be inspired to get the most out of your life and to achieve your goals. People will always try to talk you out of ideas and say, it can't be done, but if you have faith in yourself you'll find you can achieve almost anything. Contents. Introduction. 1. Just do it. 2. Have fun. 3. Be bold. 4. Challenge yourself. 5. Stand on your own feet. 6. Live the moment. 7. Value family and friends. 8. Have respect. 9. Do some good. Epilogue. Introduction. The press call me and my partners at Virgin Mavericks in Paradise. There's no doubt that we tend to do things in a less stuffy way than most businesses, and I have ended up with two tropical islands to have fun on, so it must be true. And for me it works. I work hard and I play hard. Though I have never followed the rules at every step, I have learned many lessons along the way. My lessons in life started at home, when I was young. They carried on at school and in business from as early as my teens, when I ran student magazine. I am still learning and hope I never stop. These lessons have done me good throughout my life. I have written them down and I hope that you will find something in these pages that might inspire you. I believe in goals. It's never a bad thing to have a dream, but I'm practical about it. I don't sit daydreaming about things that are impossible. I set goals and then work out how to achieve them. Anything I want to do in life I want. To do well and not half-heartedly. At school, I found reading and writing hard. Back then, dyslexia wasn't understood and my teachers just thought I was lazy. So taught myself to learn things by heart. Now I have a very good memory and it has become one of my best tools in business. When I was starting out in life, things were more certain than they are these days. You had a career lined up, often the same one your father followed. Most mothers stayed at home. Today nothing is sure and life is one long struggle. People have to make choices, if they are to get anywhere. The best lesson I learned was to just do it. It doesn't matter what it is, or how hard it might seem, as the ancient Greek, Plato, said, the beginning is the most important part of any work. A journey of a thousand miles starts with that first step. If you look ahead to the end, and all the weary miles between, with all the dangers you might face, you might never take that first step. And whatever it is you want to achieve in life, if you don't make the effort, you won't reach your goal. So take the first step. There will be many challenges. You might get knocked back, but in the end, you will make it. Good luck. Richard Branson. Chapter 1, Just Do It. Believe it can be done. Have goals. Live life to full. Never give up. Prepare well. Have faith in yourself. Help each other. The staff at Virgin have a name for me. It is Drive Yes Quote. They call me this because I won't say no. I find more reasons to do things than not to do them. My motto really is, screw it let's do it. I will never say, I can't do this, because I don't know how to. I will give it a go. I won't let silly rules stop me. I will find a legal way around them. I tell my staff, if you want to do it, just do it. That way we all benefit. The staff's work and ideas are valued and virgin gains from their input and drive. I don't believe that that little word can should stop you. If you don't have the right experience to reach your goal, look for another way in. If you want to fly, get down to the airfield at the age of 16 and make the tea. Keep your eyes open. Look and learn. You don't have to go to art school to be a fashion designer. Join a fashion company and push a broom. Work your way up. My mom, Eve, is a perfect example of this. During the war, she wanted to be a pilot. She went to Heston Airfield and asked for a job. She was told only men could be pilots. Mom was very pretty and had been a dancer on stage. She didn't look like a man. That didn't stop her. She wore a leather flying jacket and hid her blonde hair under a leather helmet. 
She talked with a deep voice. And she got the job she wanted. She learned how to glide and began to teach the new pilots. These were the young men who flew fighter planes in the Battle of Britain. After the war, she wanted to be an air hostess. Back then, they had to speak Spanish and be trained, as nurses, but Mung chatted up the night porter at the airline and he secretly put her name on the list. Soon, she was an air hostess. She still couldn't speak Spanish and she wasn't a nurse. But she had used her wits. She wouldn't say no. She just did it. Mung wasn't the only person in our family who said, let's do it. The famous explorer, Captain Robert Scott, was my granddad's cousin. He was. A man of great courage. He made two trips to the Antarctic. His goal was to be the first man to the South Pole. People said it couldn't be done. He said, I can do it. And he nearly did it. He reached the South Pole, but he was second. Roald Amundsen got there first. It was a great blow for Scott. He died on the return journey. When people say there are no prizes for being second, I think of him. He is famous for being second to the South Pole. He also made the first balloon flight over Antarctica, but people don't remember that. I started Student Magazine when I was 15 years old and still at school. Some people said I couldn't do it. They said I was too young and had no experience. But I wanted to prove them wrong and I believed it could be done. I did my sums with care. I worked out how much the paper and print bill would be. Then I worked out the income from sales and from selling advertising space. Mum gave me four pounds for stamps. My school friend, Johnny Jims, and I spent almost two years writing hundreds of letters trying to sell space. I also tried to get interviews with famous people. Writing those letters and waiting for the replies was more fun than Latin lessons. It gave me a huge buzz when we got our first check for advertising space. It was pounds 250, a huge amount. My belief had paid off. I wasn't very good at passing exams at school. I knew I would do better on my own in the world. My parents let me make that choice. They were behind me, whatever I did. So I left school when I was 16 to work full-time on student. Johnny and I camped out in the basement of his parents' London house. It was great to be young and free and in London. We drank beer, had girlfriends and listened to loud music. We were like students who didn't have to study. We worked just as hard, though. I got some first-rate interviews with John Lennon, Mick Jagger, Vanessa, Redgrave and Dudley Moore. We had more famous names than some of the top magazines. Famous people started dropping by. Life in the basement was glorious chaos. It was like a non-stop party. But we had a serious side as well. We sent our own people out to cover the big issues of the day, like the war in Vietnam and the famine in Bifa. We felt we were changing things. What we did was important as well as fun. We were a close-knit team. Even my family helped to the park and sold them there. Each time a chance came, we grabbed it. We branched out by being the first people to sell cut price records by mail order, the first advert went in the last edition of Student. When a postal strike stopped us, we looked for another way. We wouldn't give in. Our goal was to open record shops but we didn't have enough money. So we talked a man who owned a shoe shop into letting us use his spare space. We worked hard to promote the opening. We made the store a cool place for students to go. And one store led to a second and a third. Soon, we had stores in almost every big town, and I was still under 20 years old. Cash was pouring in fast. But I didn't sit back. We had reached that target but I still had more goals. One of my big goals in life is that, like Captain Scott, I have always wanted to live life to the full. So, in 1984, when I was asked to sponsor a powerboat to win the Blue Ribbon for Britain, I agreed at once. The Blue Ribbon is a prize for the fastest ocean crossing from America to Ireland. I said I'd join the crew and trained hard. There was only one slight hitch. Joan and I were due to have a baby and I had promised her that I would be there for the birth. Then we were told that the weather was just right for the record attempt. I would let down the team if I didn't go. I asked Joan, what shall I do? A-S-T, do it, go, she said. The baby's not due for two weeks. You'll be back before then. We set off 
crashing across the waves in Virgin Atlantic Challenger. At the end of the first day, I got the news that my son, Sam had been born. We cracked open the champagne and kept going. The prize, for the fastest crossing ever was within our grasp, until we hit a huge storm off Ireland. Sixty miles from the end, we were hit by a giant wave. The hull split and we sank. Mayday. 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 We were in the sea in the middle of storm, in a life raft. A boat on its way to America saved us. We had failed in our first attempt to win the blue ribbon, but we didn't give in. Six years later, I was back with Virgin Atlantic Challenger 2nd. Things were going well, until we found that seawater was getting into our fuel tanks. The engines stopped. We spent hours cleaning the tanks and trying to start engines. It seemed hopeless. The others at last said we had to give up. They said it was over. But I knew it was our last try. If we didn't do it now, we would never do it. I had to persuade them not to give in. I said, come on, we've got to do it. Let's try. We were all done in. Our eyeballs were red and tired. We were all seasick. We hated the boat. We hated the sea. We wanted to sleep for a week. We've to go on, I yelled. All right, I agreed. We'll give it one last shot. Somehow we started the engines and got going again. It seemed hopeless. We were so far behind that there seemed little point in trying. But we kept on going. We made up time. In the end we beat the record by just 2 hours and 9 minutes, but we did it. The lesson I learned from that and that I live by is to keep trying and to never give up. The day, after we won the blue ribbon, a Swede named Pearl Lindstrand asked me to cross Atlantic again, in a hot air balloon. I thought my old hero, Captain Scott. He had flown in a balloon over the South Pole. I had never been in a balloon before. No one had ever flown that far in a balloon before. It was mad. It was too risky. By then, my companies were dealing in hundreds of millions of pounds. What would happen, if I died? There were many problems. But I can't resist a challenge and the chance to try something new. I said, screw it, let's do it. But first I asked Per, do you have any children? Yes he said. I've got to. That was good enough for me, if he would take the challenge, so would I. I shook his hand and said I would join him. I always tell people that, if they want to do anything well, they must plan and prepare. So I went to Spain with Per and learned to fly in a balloon. I didn't know it then, but those lessons saved my life. One of the things I learned was that each hot air balloon carries fuel, which is burnt to heat the air in the balloon. Hot air rises and so does the balloon. When the fuel is not burnt, the air cools and the balloon drops lower in the sky. When flying a hot air balloon, the pilot must heat or cool the air so that the balloon is at the right level to catch the wind going in the direction the balloon needs to go. The winds and the jet stream blow from America to Europe. We left from America and 29 hours later, we were over Ireland. We were the first to cross the Atlantic in a hot air balloon. There was only one problem, how to land. We had some full fuel tanks left and it was too dangerous to land with them. We might crash and burn. We chose to come down low and drop the tanks in a field. We reduced the flame in the balloon and came down low. We cut the tanks free. But then we were too light. We bounced across a field and shot up into the sky, out of control. Let's come down on the beach, where we won't hurt people, Per said. We flew into thick fog and missed the beach. The sea looked very black and stormy. If we landed in it with balloon, we could drown. I struggled into my life jacket. Suddenly, from around 56 feet up, Per jumped into the icy sea without his weight. The balloon shot up too high for me to jump. I was on my own. I floated higher and higher into the clouds. The winds took me north, towards Scotland. I was alone, flying in the biggest balloon ever built. I had about an hour of fuel left. When it went, I would fall into the sea. I tried the radio. It was dead. I didn't know what to do. I could jump out in my parachute or stay out. I wrote in my notebook, Joan, Holly, Sam, I love you. While I am alive, I can still do something, I said to myself. Something will turn up. Something did. As the balloon drifted down towards the gray sea, I came out of the clouds and saw a helicopter. It was searching for me. I waved and the crew waved back. I was safe. 
close to the waves, I jumped into the sea, away from the balloon. Without my weight, it flew up and out of sight. The helicopter fished me out of the icy water. I asked about Purr, but they had thought he was with me. He had been in the sea for hours. We had to find him quickly. I told them where he would be and he was rescued just before he froze to death. The whole trip was an amazing experience. I learned many lessons, not just if you want to do something, just do it, but also to prepare well, have faith in yourself, help each other, never give up. All of these lessons can be used in life. You don't have to run a big business, fly in a balloon, or break records in a boat to learn from and use the lessons I learned. Your goal can be small. Student magazine was very small at first. I sold space in it from a payphone at school, because I believed I could and would do it. If something is what you really want to do, just do it. Whatever your goal is you will never succeed, unless you let go of your fears and fly. Chapter 2, Have Fun. Have fun, work hard and money will come. Don't waste time, grab your chances. Have a positive outlook on life. When it's not fun, move on. I don't deny that I have done well and had success. It has even been said that I turned that I touch into gold. People ask me what my secret is. How do I make money? What they really want to know is, how can they make money? Everyone wants to be a millionaire. I always tell them the same thing. I have no secret. There are no rules to follow in business. I just work hard and, as I always have done, believe I can do it. Most of all, though, I try to have fun. When I was about to go around the world in a hot air balloon in 1997 I knew that it was very risky. I might not return. Before I left, I wrote a letter to my children, Sam and Holly. In it, I said, live life to the full. Enjoy every minute of it. Love and look after mom. Those words sum up what I believe in. Don't waste time. Have fun. Love your family. Notice that making money isn't in that list. I didn't set out to be rich. The fun and the challenge in life were what I wanted, and still do. I don't deny that money is important. We are not cavemen and women. We can live just on roots and berries. We live in an era when we must have some money to survive. I once said I only need one breakfast, one lunch and one dinner a day. And I still live by those words. I never went into business to make money, but I have found that, if I have fun, the money will come. I often ask myself, is my work fun and does it make me happy? I believe that the answer to that matters more than fame or fortune. If something stops being fun, I ask why? If I can't fix it, I stop doing it. You might ask, how do I know that fun will lead to money? Of course it doesn't always happen. I have had my downs as well as ups. But on the whole I have been very lucky. For almost as long as I remember, I have had fun and I've made money. My very first business lessons weren't success, but I learned from them. My first money-making scheme was when I was about nine years old. One Easter I came up with a great plan. I would grow Christmas trees. I asked my best friend, Mick Powell, to help me plant 400 seeds in our field at home. We worked hard but also enjoyed ourselves. We enjoyed messing about on the farm. All we had to do was wait for the seeds to turn into Christmas trees. It would take 18 months. The first thing I had to learn was how to use figures. I was not good at sums at school. On paper, they made no sense. But as I planned our Christmas tree business, I used real sums that did make sense. The bag of seeds cost just pounds five and we would sell each tree for pounds two. We would make pounds 795, which was worth waiting for. Even at an early age I planned long term and learned to wait for reward. My second lesson was that money doesn't grow on trees. Sadly, rabbits ate all the seedlings. We got some revenge, though. I'm sorry to say we had fun shooting the rabbits. We sold them for shilling each to the local butcher. Overall, we did make a small profit and all our friends had rabbit pie. We all gained something. You never know what you will find on a sunny beach. Point. Point. On holiday, I found my very own desert island and an airline. In 1976 I was working and building up Virgin Music. Mike Oldfield had already been our first big success with Tubular Bells in 1973. We also signed up the Sex Pistols, so things were on the up. 
We were very busy but we all also had a great deal of fun people said things like Branson's lucky devil to come across a huge yet like tubular bells. Yes, it was a lucky break, but we grabbed it. It had been taken to every other record company. They had turned it down. But we heard it and believed in it. We knew it would happen. Making it work was hard for a bunch of kids like us, though. We had to find the money. We had to push it to the top. We had to think differently. We asked John Peel to play the entire album on his show and he did. It had never been done before. And it worked. Sales took off. Mike Oldfield was too shy to promote the album. We found an answer. We made a video and showed it on TV. Our big breakthrough was when we got it used as the soundtrack of The Exorcist. Sales were massive. We were success, but we never stopped looking for new sounds and new talent. By the end of 1977 I needed a break. My girlfriend, Joan and I had split up. I was sad but I liked to make the best of things. I always like to get away from London in the winter. Music, sun and sea make me feel good. The distance from London gives me the space and freedom to think and plan out fresh ideas. I went to Jamaica. It was part holiday, part work. I swam in a warm sea. I sat on the beach. I listened to some great reggae bands. Then we heard new kind of music. It was made by local DJs and radio jocks, who were known as toasters quote. It was a kind of early rap, so I was in at the start of something big. Jamaican musicians won't take checks so I signed up almost 20 reggae bands and some toasters from a case filled with cash. We went on to sell lots of records with them. It was a perfect example of my motto, have fun and the money will come. I was still in Jamaica, when Joan phoned me out of the blue. Can you meet me in New York, she said. We had a happy time in New York City, but the phone didn't stop ringing. We longed to escape and spend some time alone. Someone asked me if I had named Virgin after the Virgin Islands. The answer was no. We had named the company Virgin because we were Virgin in business. But I had never been to the Virgin Islands. And they sounded like the perfect romantic place for Joan and me. I had spent all our cash on signing up bands in Jamaica. But I had heard that if you were looking for a house on an island, you would get a grand tour, free of charge. I phoned an estate agent in the British Virgin Islands. I said I owned a record company and wanted to buy an island to build a studio on it. Please come as our guests. We have lots of lovely islands for sale. We'll show you around. Joan and I flew to the British Virgin Islands. We were treated like royalty. A big car met us at the airport and took us to a villa. It was like being in paradise. The next day a helicopter was waiting to take us on a tour. We schemed over green palm trees and a blue sea. We landed on one lovely island after the other. We toured fantastic private estates and had a great time. We spun our free holiday out as long as we could, but at last we were running out of islands for sale. We asked the agent if he had something that we hadn't seen. Yes there's one, a real little jewel he said. It smiles from anywhere and it's quite unspoiled. Its name is Necker. He said an English lord owned it, a man who had never been there. An island that was miles from anywhere sounded good on two counts. The first was it was a nice long flight with plenty of scenery for us to enjoy. The second was we really did the sound of it. Unspoiled meant that it had not been built on. Perhaps it would be cheap. At first, island hopping was a game. We didn't mean to buy an island. I didn't think I could afford one. But now I was excited. I wanted to own our own place in paradise. I had another goal. We flew over a blue sea and could see pale sand at the bottom. We landed on a white sandy beach. There was a green hill in the middle, and we climbed up it. The view from the top was worth the effort. We could see in every direction. The island was inside a coral reef. The white beach ran almost all the way around. The agent told us that turtles laid their eggs on the beach. The sea was so clear we could see a giant ray swimming along. In the middle of the island were two small lakes. There was a lush, tropical forest. A flock of black parrots flew overhead. There were no big villas. It was a real desert island. Standing there, gazing out to sea, I was king of all I saw. I fell in love with Necker on the spot. The agent warned us that there was no fresh water on the island. If we bought 
it, we would have to make it from the sea. Good, I thought. They can't be asking a lot for a desert island with no water and no house. I asked him the price. Three million pounds, he said. It was far beyond my reach. I can offer pounds 150,000, I replied. I was offering less than 5% of the asking price. I was serious but the agent wasn't amused. The price is 3 million pounds, he repeated. Final offer. I can go to pounds 200, 000, 000, I said. We walked back down that hill and got into the helicopter. We flew back to the villa. Our bags were waiting outside. We had been thrown out. We spent the night in a bed and breakfast in the village and left the next day. We spent the rest of our holiday on another island. Our plan was to travel on to Puerto Rico, but when we got to the airport, the flight was cancelled. People were roaming about, looking lost. No one was doing anything. So I did, someone had to. I chartered a plane for pounds 2000. I divided that by the number of people. It came to pounds 39 ahead. I borrowed a blackboard and wrote on it, I borrowed a blackboard and wrote on it, Virgin Airways. Pounds 39 single flight to Puerto Rico. The idea of Virgin Airways was born, right in the middle of a holiday, although the actual airline only properly took off, when I was sent a business idea. I had never chartered a plane before, but, as with tubular bells and the Jamaican toasters, I saw and grabbed the chance. And look at Virgin Atlantic today. We fly to 30 places around the world. We have Virgin Blue in Australia, Virgin Express in Europe and Virgin Nigeria. We are planning Virgin America. And we've even gone further, Virgin Galactic will offer flights into space. No one else is doing that. It's a bold move. We are ahead of everyone. In 21 years we have gone from renting a plane to space travel. Back in London with Joan after our holiday, I still had my goal to buy Necker Island. I did some research. I found that the owner of Necker was not rich, which is why he had never developed an island. I also found that he wanted to sell in a hurry so he could raise pounds 200,000 to build house in a London. It was the same sum I had offered the agent. It seemed that my offer was meant to be. The only problem was, I didn't have pounds 200,000, so I was going to have to borrow it from someone. I offered pounds 175,000, which I didn't have either. It was turned down. I left it at that and got on with work. Three months later, I got a call to say the island was mine, if I offered pounds 180,000. I was told that, as art of the deal, I had to build a house and a plant to take the salt out of the seawater, so that we could use it within five years. This would cost a lot. But I was positive I could find the money somewhere to do it and I agreed to the terms. Now all I had to do was find the money to buy the island of my dreams. It seemed out of reach, but I vowed to reach my goal. I promised myself that I would make enough money to pay for the island, which I did, by taking on loans from the bank and by borrowing from my friends and family. So, while it doesn't have to be buying an island, this is why I can say, have fun and the money will come and in turn so will your goals. Today, Necker is a lovely place, where all my friends and family gather together to relax and play. The last episode of my TV series, The Rebel Billionaire, was filmed there. The camera filmed from the terrace. It showed our wonderful view of the sea, the white sandy beach and the palm trees. It was the same view that Joan and I saw from the top of that green hill all those years ago. I signed up bands on Jamaica and ended up with an airline and an island. It wasn't always easy. But when you have goals and a positive outlook on life, you have something to aim for. Hard work and fun is what life is all about. As soon as something stops being fun, I think it's time to move on. Life is too short to be unhappy. Waking up stressed and miserable is not a good way to live. I found this out years ago in my working relationship with my oldest friend, Mick Powell. Mick was with me from very start of the Virgin. I was the ideas person and Mick kept the books in order and handled the money. His main job was to run the Virgin Records stores. They did very well. When we started airline, we wanted it to be the best. We sank millions of pounds into it. Our main rival, British Airways, tried to stop us. As the war between us heated up, we needed more and more money. It seemed an endless pit. 
Virgin Music was wealthy but the airline was eating up the cash. Nick didn't enjoy taking such huge risks. That was, when we both knew it was time for him to move on. I bought his shares in Virgin from him. Nick's first love had always been films. He used his profit from Virgin to start Palace Pictures. He made great films, like The Company of Wolves, Mona Lisa and The Crying Game, which won Oscar. He is still in the film business, still having fun and we are still friends. After a struggle, the airline finally went into profit. If Nick had stayed with Virgin he might have made more money, but he would not have been happy. If we had gone on working together even, after the fun had gone, we might not have stayed friends. He made the right choice. This is, why I say, never just try to make money. Long-term success will never come, if profit is the only aim. I have been lucky. Virgin now has the luxury of a great deal of money behind it. People say I should relax. I could retire. I ask, what would I do? Hey say, paint watercolors. Play golf. Have fun. But I am already having fun. My work is fun. Fun is at the core of the way I do business. It has been the key to it all from the start. I see no reason to change it. Not all of us have the money to start up a business, or the luck, or the chances aren't there. Sometimes, you are just glad to have a job, any job. So you grab the job in the factory or the store or the call center. You might hate it, but you try to make the best of things. But is that fun? I would say do you really have to stay stuck in a rut? Is that job you hate really your only option? However you are, you have other choices. Look around. See what else you can do. The internet has opened many new doors. A friend of mine wanted to hire a van. So he looked on the net and soon had 20 offers of a van with working driver. There are work and trading chances on the web, it has changed the lives of people with ideas and energy. Even those with little. Experience can create a successful internet mail-order business. Wilf and Kathy started Chili's Galore by making chili jelly to give away to their friends in their kitchen in Norfolk 15 years ago. They progressed to selling at fairs and the response from Chili Lover everywhere led them to go online. Today, they make and sell a big range of unusual jellies and relishes. All their chilies are still grown into greenhouses in the back garden. Prince Charles sells his organic food online. And there's even a mail-order Christmas tree business, Christmas Tree Land in Dash which started out as a small roadside stall. Today, they sell anything festive, from bottles to bells. So I was right, back, when I was 8 years old. If the rabbits had behaved, I could have been a Christmas tree king. Even without the internet anyone can start up a new business from home. You can wash windows, take in ironing or walk dogs. You can be an artist or writer. You can be a gardener. You can make and sell dolls houses. Anita erotic made skin cream in her kitchen. Now the body shop is a big empire. You can make salad dressing in your garage like Paul Newman. With him it started as a hobby. Now it's a big company. He gives all the profits to charity. So far, he has given away more than $150 million, not bad for a hobby. Granted, Paul Newman didn't have to worry about funding. But there are dozens of things you can do from home to make money. It could be more fun and lead to a new career you really enjoy. If you do still have to work for a boss at a job you don't like, as almost everyone does at some point, don't moan about it. Have a positive outlook on life and just get on with it. Work hard and earn your pay. Enjoy the people you come into contact with through your job. And if you are still unhappy, make it instead your goal to divide your private life from your work life. Have fun in your own time, you will feel happier and you'll enjoy your life and your job more. Chapter 3, Be Bold. Calculate the risks and take them. Believe in yourself. Chase your dreams and goals. Have no regrets. Be bold. Keep your word. In 2004 I made a TV series, The Rebel Billionaire. The final episode had a twist at the end. I offered the prize winner, Sean Nelson, a check for $1 million, but there was a catch. He could take the check or toss a coin for an even bigger mystery prize. If he lost the toss, he would lose it all. I held out the check. He took it and saw the long line of zeros. Then I took it back and put it all. I held out the check. He took it and saw the long line of zeros. Then I took it back and saw the long line of zeros. 
Then I took it back and put it in my hip pocket. I held out a silver coin. Which one will it be? I said. The coin or the check? Life is full of hard choices. Which one would he go for? Sean looked shaken. It was a huge gamble. All or nothing. He asked me, what would you do, Richard? It's up to you, I said. I could have told him, I take risks, but they are calculated risks. I weigh up the odds in everything I do. Instead, I said nothing. He had to make up his own mind. Sean walked back and forth, trying to decide. It was tempting to gamble. It would make him look cool. Also, the unknown price might be amazing. At last, he said he couldn't risk losing that much money on the toss of a coin. He owned a small company. He could use the money wisely to help his business grow. It could change his life for the better. It would also help the people who worked for him and believed in him. I'll take the check, he said. I was pleased. If you had gone for the coin toss, I would have lost all respect for you, I said. He made the right choice and didn't gamble on something that he couldn't control. He got the million dollars and the mystery prize. The big prize was to be president of Virgin for three months. Virgin has 200 companies, so Sean would learn a lot. It was a golden chance. I am always looking for that certain something in people like Sean that makes them different to other people. People who work at Virgin are special. They aren't cheap. They think for themselves. They have good ideas and I listen to them. What is the point of hiring bright people if you don't use their talent? One of the things I try to do at Virgin is make people think about themselves and see themselves more positively. I firmly believe that anything is possible. I tell them, believe in yourself. You can do it. I also say, be bold but don't gamble. I get sent thousands of ideas each week, they are people's goals and dreams. There are too many for me to look at. My staff read them first and weed them out. I look at the best ones. One plan I was offered ended in disaster. I was young. My urge to try anything almost killed me. Sadly, it killed the inventor. A man called Richard Ellis sent me a photo of his flying machine. It had a three-wheeled bike beneath two large wings. It was powered by a small outboard engine. There were rotors above the pilot's head. The photo showed a man soaring above the treetops. I was curious and I invited him to show me how it worked. When he came, we went to the local airfield with Joan and some friends. He took his machine to a landing strip. You had to pedal like mad to get speed up. Then the engine would cut in and start the rotors. He said I would be second person to try it. But he didn't want me to fly. Ah, uh, you need to get used to it first, he said. It looked like fun. I sat on machine. He gave me a cable with a rubber switch at end, which went in mouth. I had to bite on the switch to make the engine cut out. I would stop at the end of the runway, before I took off. Okay. Go. Ellis shouted. I put the cable in my mouth and set off down the runway. I pedaled like hell. The engine kicked in. I went faster and faster. When it seemed fast enough, I get into the switch to stop. Nothing happened. I went even faster. I get harder. Nothing. I reached 30 miles an hour. I could see Joan looking at me at the end of the runway, as I got closer. Suddenly, I rose into the air. The flying machine took off, with me hanging on. I was flying. I soared over some trees. I rose higher. When I was at 100 feet, I knew I had to stop it somehow. I tugged at wires and pulled them out. I burned my hands on the hot engine but at last the engine cut out and I spun down to the ground. At the very last moment, a small gust of wind flipped the machine over. Flipped the machine over. A wing took the impact. I fell out onto the grass. I was safe but shocked. A week later, Ellis took off in the flying machine. It crashed to earth. He died on impact. His death was sad, but people with vision do die. Mountain climbers fall, and test pilots crash. As a child, I knew the war hero, Douglas Bader. He was a friend of my Aunt Claire's. He lost his legs in a flying accident. He learned to walk and also flew again. You can take care and try to avoid the risks, but you can't protect yourself all the time. I am sure that luck play, as very large part. It's easy to give up when things are hard but I believe we have to keep chasing our dreams and our goals, as
these exciting people did. And once we decided to do something, we should never look back, never regret it. One decision I didn't regret was a proposal from a young American lawyer. In 1984 he wanted me to invest me in a new airline that would fly across the Atlantic. Even, before I read his plan had wanted to do it. Freddie Lacker, a childhood hero of mine, ran Skytrain, a cut-price airline between England and America. He was a big man with bold ideas. He was David to the Goliath of the big airlines. He wanted to make air travel cheap enough so that more people could afford it, but the airline had collapsed in 1982. With Freddie and my lane chartering to get to Puerto Rico in mind, I read the proposal. It would cost a great deal of money and I told myself, don't be tempted. Don't even think about it. But I was tempted. The idea grabbed me. It was exciting. I can make up my mind about people and ideas in 60 seconds. I rely more in gut instinct than thick reports. I knew within a minute that this was for me. It was a very bold step, but worth it. I decided to look into it. I had to work out in my own mind what the risks were. There was already a popular airline that sold cheap fares across the Atlantic. It was called People Express. I tried to call them. It seemed everyone must wanted to fly, as their lines were busy. I tried all day but couldn't get through. I knew I could run an airline better than that. I spent a weekend thinking it over. By Sunday evening I had made up my mind. I would be bold. I would just do it. On Monday, I called Boeing, the biggest American company that made planes. I asked how much it would cost to rent a jumbo jet for a year. They were surprised, but they listened to me. By the end of the call we had worked out a good price. I felt I had done enough research. I met my parents in Virgin Music to discuss it. They said I was crazy. I said that we could afford it. We had to be bold. I don't want us to sit on our money like misers. It's there to be used, I said. They still didn't look happy so I pressed on. I said that Virgin Music was making a lot of money. The money to start an airline was less than a third of a year's profits. It was a lot, but not too much. Even if we lost it all, we would survive. It's not too big a risk. And it'll be fun. They weren't happy with the word fun. To them, business was serious. It is. But, to me, having fun matters more. I want to live life to the full. I want new goals to reach for. I decided to call the airline Virgin Atlantic. I asked Sir Freddie Lacker to lunch to talk about my new project. He was a great help. He had years of experience. Most of all he knew the problems in starting a new airline. His airline had done well until the big airlines undercut him. They had the money to keep going. They could afford to make losses while they drove his new airline out. Freddie ran on a shoestring. He ran out of money and went bust. Over lunch, he told me how an airline worked. We discussed what I should look out for. Freddie said, look out for dirty tricks from British Airways. BA's dirty tricks ruined me. Don't let them ruin you. Complain as loudly as you can. My mistake was that I didn't complain. I don't like to complain. I don't cry over spilled milk. I just get on with things. But I made a mental note. Watch out for dirty tricks. Complain loudly. Freddie also advised, don't make it cheap, no frills service. The big airlines can undercut you, like they did to me. Instead offer a better service than they do, at a good price. People want comfort. And don't forget the fun. People like to have fun. Good luck. Be ready for a great deal of stress. All of his advice was helpful, when I had to talk to officials. Safety was a big concern. Making sure the airliner was well-funded was another. I worked out a cash flow survival plan. I hired the right people. I got a good team. I struck to it. I wouldn't take no for an answer. I found other ways around problems. And, believe me, there were endless problems. BA did try dirty tricks against us. They tried to destroy us by ruining my name. Sir Freddy said, sue the bastards and I took BA to court for libel, and won. When Virgin Atlantic launched in 1984, not one person thought it would survive for more than a year. The bosses of the big American airline companies said I'd fail. Now they are all out, if business. I'm still there. I was bold, yes, but not foolish. I took a risk by starting up airline. But the odds were good. 
they were not all or nothing, like they were with the winner of the Rebel Billionaire, and I had thought through how to manage the risks. Sean Nelson could have won it all or lost it all on the spin of a coin. It took courage to refuse. My next big venture was starting Virgin Trains in 1996. I got the idea when I was in Japan. I was there to look for a site to build a new megastore. When we took the bullet train, I thought it was great. It was like being on a plane. Why can't trains be like this in the UK? I thought. I jotted down some notes to remind me. It was fate. The next week the UK government said they would break up the old train system, British Rail, and let new business compete to run trains. I jumped in and said I was interested. The news hit the papers, Virgin to go into trains. They said it was a bold move. Again, as with the airline, some people said I would fail. It took five years but we did it. We produced the world's most advanced learning train. It was a proud moment when my wife Joan named it Virgin Lady. At the time, it went too fast for the UK's old tracks. Once again, we were ahead of everyone. The TV news said we had made good on our promises. One thing I always try to do is to keep my word. I set my goals and stick to them. Success is more than luck. You have to believe in yourself and make it happen. That way others also believe in you. Sometimes, I get business offers that I turn down. I had the chance to invest in Ryanair, a good, no-frills airline. I turned it down. Ryanair is still going strong. I also turned down the chance to invest in Trivial Pursuit and a wind-up radio. All of them were good ideas. I turned down the chance to be a Lloyd's name. Lloyd's is the biggest insurance company in the world. They insure against huge losses like hurricanes and earthquakes. Turning them down, though, was a good choice. I could have lost a fortune. Some you win and some you lose. Be glad when you win. Don't have regrets when you lose. Never look back. You can't change the past. I try to learn from it. We can't all run big airlines or trains. Many people have more modest goals. But whatever your dream is, go for it. Always beware, if the risks are too random or too hard to predict, but remember, if you opt for a safe life, you will never know what it's like to win. Chapter 4, Challenge Yourself. Aim high. Try new things. Always try. Challenge yourself. Everyone needs something to aim for. You can call it a challenge, or you can call it a goal. It is what makes us human. It was challenges that took us from being cavemen to reaching for the stars. If you challenge yourself, you will grow. Your life will change. Your outlook will be positive. It's not always easy to reach your goal but that's no reason to stop. Never say die. Say yourself I can do it. I'll keep on trying, until I win. For me, there are two types of challenge. One is to do the best I can at work. The other is to seek adventure. I try to do the both. I try to stretch myself to the limit. I am driven. I love the challenge of looking for new things and new ideas. To me, the stretch is fun. My first big challenge came when I was four or five years old and we went to Devon for two weeks one summer. Dad's sisters and an uncle went with us. When we got there, I ran onto the beach and started at the sea. I couldn't swim and Auntie Joyce bet me 10 shillings that I couldn't learn to swim by the end of the holiday. I took the bet, sure I would win. Most days, the sea was rough and the waves were high, but I tried for hours. Day after day, I splashed along, with one foot on the bottom. I grew blue with cold and swallowed a lot of seawater, but still I couldn't swim. Never mind, Ricky, Auntie Joyce said, kindly. There's always next year. I had lost the bet. I was sure she would forget about it next year. As we set off home in the car, I gazed out of the window. How I wished I had learned to swim. I hated losing the bet. It was a hot day and in the 1950s the roads were very narrow. We weren't going very fast when I saw a river. We hadn't got home so we were still really on holiday. I knew it was my last chance to win. Stop the car. I shouted. My parents knew about the bet and, though they obviously would not have done what I said, when I was that age, I think my father knew what I wanted and how much it meant to me. Dad drove off the road and parked. What's up? He asked. Tikai wants to have another go at winning that ten shillings, Mum's aid. 
I jumped out of the car and stripped quickly, then ran across a field to the river. When I got to the bank, I felt scared. The river looked deep and fast, running over rocks. There was a muddy part where cows drank from. It was easy to reach the water from there. I turned my head and saw everyone standing, watching me. Mum smiled and waved me on. Ah uh, you can do it Ricky, she called. I walked through the mud and waded into the water. As soon as I got in the middle the current caught at me. I went under and choked. I came up, and was swept fast downstream. I took a deep breath and relaxed. I knew I could do it. I put one foot on a rock and pushed off. Soon, I was swimming. I swam in an awkward circle, but I'd won the bet. I heard the family cheering on the bank. When I crawled out, I was done in, but very proud. I crawled through mud and stinging nettles to reach Auntie Joyce. She held up the ten shillings. Well done, Ricky she said. I knew you could do it, Mum said. And so had I, and I was not going to give up, until I had proved it. One thing I couldn't do very well was read. I always found lessons hard at school, because I was mildly dyslexic. I hated to admit defeat, but however hard I struggled, as with many other people, reading and writing were hard for me. For some reason this made me want to be a reporter, a job where reading and writing were always needed. When I found that my school had an essay contact I entered. I don't know who was the most surprised, when I won. I was the boy who was often caned for failing tests. But I had won an essay contest. I was thrilled. When I told to mom, she said, I knew you could win, Ricky. Mom is one of those people who never says can't. She believes anything is possible, if you try. From then on, my schoolwork improved. I learned to focus on hard words and my spelling got better. I think this shows that you can achieve almost anything, but you have to make the effort. I didn't stop challenging myself. I went on from winning that essay prize to staring students magazine. I think I wanted to prove that the boy who was caned for not being able to read or write very well could do it and dash and I did. As I grew older, I faced bigger challenges. I seemed to run on high energy. I wanted adventure. Danger tempted me. I had already set a record for being the first to cross the Atlantic in a balloon with purr. Next we decided to cross the Pacific Ocean, from Japan to the USA. It was a far more dangerous venture, across 8,000 miles of open sea. No one had ever done it before. I knew how risky it was, because our arrival had just died in an attempt. His balloon had torn and he landed in the freezing sea. It was so stormy, he couldn't be rescued in time, and he died from cold. Joan didn't want me to go on this trip, and I must admit I was nervous. But I had promised to go and we were ready for the attempt. I couldn't withdraw, so I resigned myself to fate. My head said stop, but my heart said go. Whatever the danger, I wouldn't give in and I think Joan understood. I knew it would be a strange trip. I was a team player, who always looked for the best in the people. Her was a quiet loner, who always looked for the worst. I hoped we would balance each other out. It was 1990, and, just, before we left, I spent Christmas on a small island near Japan with my family and friends. It was very lovely and peaceful there. I watched men catching fish with tame birds. Their lives seemed calm and tranquil. I wondered what they would think of my constant rushing about. I only knew that challenges were that drove me onwards. Our plan was to cross the ocean on one of the jet streams that circle the Earth between 20,000 and 4,000 feet up. They travel as faster as a river in full flood. Below that, the winds are slower. Our problem was the height of our giant balloon from the top to the bottom of the capsule below. It was over 300 feet. As we broke through into the jet stream, the top half of the balloon and the bottom would travel at different speeds. Anything could happen. Inside the capsule we put on our parachutes and clipped ourselves to the life rafts, so that, if anything went wrong we did not waste valuable time doing that later. Then we fired the burners. As we rose, the top of the balloon hit the bottom of the jet stream. It was like hitting a glass ceiling. We burned more fuel to try to rise, but the winds were so strong they kept pushing us. Down. We burned even more fuel, and at last broke through. The top of the balloon was caught by the fast current and took off like a rocket. It was flying along at a crazy angle at 115 miles an hour. 
the capsule, with us inside it, was still going at 25 miles per hour. It felt like a thousand horses were dragging us apart. We feared the balloon would be torn in two, and the heavy capsule would hurtle thousands of feet down to the sea. But, at the last moment, the capsule shot through the glass ceiling and the balloon righted itself. No one has ever done that before, Per said. We flew along at great speed, faster than we thought possible. Seven hours later it was time to lose the first empty fuel tank. It seemed safer to drop down out of the jet stream to do this. We cut off the burners and went down into a slower zone. At once, the capsule acted like a brake, but the balloon still hurtled along. We could see the angry gray sea 25,000 feet below us. I wondered if we would end up in it. Perk pressed the button to release the empty fuel tank. At once, the capsule lurched sideways. The floor tilted and I fell against Perk. To our horror we found that two full tanks as well as the empty one had fallen off one side. They weighed a ton each. Not only were we lopsided and off balance, now we didn't have enough fuel to control our height and find the right wind pattern, so we couldn't reach the USA. Three tons lighter, the balloon soared upwards. We hit the jet stream so fast we shot through the glass ceiling like a bullet and kept on rising. Per let some air out of the balloon, but still we flew up and up. We had been warned that the glass dome of our capsule would explode at 43,000 feet and our lungs and eyeballs would be sucked out of our bodies. At 41,000 feet we entered the unknown. We reached a frightening 42,500 feet. We had no idea what might happen. We were higher not only than any balloon had been, but than any aircraft had ever flown, except Concorde. At last we stopped rising. The balloon cooled and we started to fall fast. We didn't want to burn extra fuel, but we had to, to stop falling. We couldn't come down in the sea, because there was no one to rescue us. We would have to last for another 30 hours on almost no fuels. In order to reach land we had to fly faster than any balloon had ever flown before. That meant staying right in the center of the jet stream, a space just a hundred yards wide. It seemed impossible. The final straw was, when we lost radio contact. We had been going for hours and per worn out. He lay down and fell into an instant, deep sleep. I was on my own. I don't believe in God, but that day it felt as if a guardian angel had entered the capsule and was helping us along. From the dials I saw that we had started to speed up, faster and faster. I thought I was dreaming and slapped my face to make sure I was awake. We went from 80 miles an hour, through to 180, then 200, then 240. This wasn't heard of. It seemed like a miracle. I was so bone-weary, I felt spaced out. When I saw strange, flickering lights in the glass dome, I thought they were spirits. I watched them, as if in a dream, until I realized that burning lumps of gas were falling all around. It was minus 70 degrees outside. If a fireball hit the glass dome, it would explode. Zerar. I yelled. Wake up. We're on fire. Kerr woke up fast. He knew at once what to do. Fuck her up to 40,000 feet, where there's no oxygen, he said. Then the fire will go out. At just under 43,000 feet the flames died and we started down again. But we had wasted precious fuel. Then the radio came back on. A voice said, war's broken out in the Gulf. The Americans are bombing Baghdad. It seemed strange that, while we were alone almost on the edge of space a war had just started on Earth. Our ground crew told us our jet stream had turned. It would loop us back to Japan. We had to get into a lower jet stream at once, one that would take us to the Arctic. We dropped down to 30,000 feet and flew hour after hour at over 200 miles an hour in a lopsided capsule. We finally landed in a blizzard, on a frozen lake in the far north of Canada in a wild area 200 times the size of the Britain. We were so far off the beaten track it took 8 hours to be rescued. By then we both had frostbite. Next time, we'll fly around the world, Per said. I laughed, but I knew I couldn't turn down a challenge. We made the attempt a couple of years later, but someone beat us to it. Now I am planning space travel as my next big thing, with Virgin Galactic. Just before we had left to cross the Pacific, my daughter, Holly, sent me a fax. She wrote, I hope you don't land in the water and have a bad landing. 
I hope you have a good landing and land on a dry land. It seemed a perfect metaphor for life. I have been lucky. So far, I have nearly always landed on dry land. I think the writer and mountain climber James Ullman summed it all up when he said something like, Challenge is the core and mainspring of all human action. If there's an ocean, we cross it. If there's disease, we cure it. If there's a run, we write it. If there's record, we break it. And if there's a mountain, we climb it. I totally agree and believe we should all continue to challenge ourselves. Chapter 5, Stand on Your Own Feet. Rely on Yourself. Chase your dreams but live in the real world. Work together. If you want milk, don't sit on a stool in the middle of the field in the hope that the cow will back up you. This old saying could have been one of why mother's quotes. She would have added, go on, Ricky. Don't just sit around. Catch the cow. An old recipe for rabbit pie said, first, catch the rabbit. Note that it didn't say, first, buy the rabbit, or sit on your bottom until someone gives it to you. Lessons like this, talk to me by my mom from, when I was toddler, are what have made me stand on my own two feet.